0: verses 9 through the end of verse 19, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. And began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed a sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to your word because we believe that herein you speak to us. We thank you that you have have not apportioned for us uh, your word by means of subjective means, like uh, hearing a whisper or nudging or a prompting, but that you speak to us so clearly and so forcefully and so eternally in Your Word. We thank You that Your Word is reliable, that we can trust it, and we thank You that You have revealed Yourself and Your Son, and uh, what You have done for us in Him in this Your Word. We pray that You would speak to us this morning through Your Word. We believe that when the Word of God is rightly preached, the voice of God is truly heard. May that be the case this morning, and may You send Your Spirit to be our teacher. May Your Word be our guide, and may Your glory be our everlasting aim. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, John chapter 12 has three main events. We said this at the beginning of the 12th chapter. The first is the anointing of Jesus for burial, first 11 verses. Second is the triumphal entry, or what's known as the triumphal entry, beginning of verse 12. And the third one, which is later on in the chapter, which we didn't get to in our reading, is the Greeks coming to seek after Jesus, and they wanted to meet Jesus. And those are the three events. They're all very public. We have looked at the first, which is the anointing of Jesus for burial. And we saw in connection with that event that there were five actions or reactions by five different parties. And we looked at the service of Martha, the sacrifice of Mary, and the selfishness of Judas. And the contrast between the first two, Martha and Mary, and Judas could not be more stark. Um, Martha and Mary served the Lord in whatever capacity was sort of most natural for them. Uh, Martha being busy, Mary sacrificing and pouring out something of value on Christ. And then you contrast that with Judas, who was like a wet blanket, blanket or like a like a darkness in that whole event. His selfishness and his wicked heart had to manifest itself in his desire to get the money for himself. And Judas is really, if Mary and Martha are pictures of true and genuine believers, what a genuine true believer looks like, as far as John is concerned, and they are, then Judas has to be the picture of the quintessential hypocrite, the poster boy of fake belief, a man who was able to Go under the cover of the disciples, unnoticed by them, undetected by them, unknown to everybody except Jesus alone, who knew he was a hypocrite and the devil, and identified him as such, and knew he was such. Uh, he went under the, the cloak of darkness, as it were, with all of those men, and nobody ever suspected him. The, the, the poster boy, the poster boy for a hypocrisy, and an unbelievable hypocrisy. All he saw in Jesus and following Jesus was an opportunity for personal profit. Everybody he looked at. Everything that they did, everywhere that he went, he saw people and their possessions as a means of contributing to the pot so that he who oversaw the pot could be pilfering money and taking money out of that for his own use. So he saw Jesus and following Jesus as an opportunity for personal profit. Now Judas is not the only one in this picture with false motives and a bad heart. There are two more groups that we haven't looked at yet, and we're going to be looking at them this morning. And they are the the shallow-seeking crowd in verses in verse 9, and the scheming leaders in verses 10 and 11. And uh, here's what we're going to do. Verses, verses 9 through 11 really act as sort of a transition, as it were, between uh, between the anointing for burial, which was a public event, but a little bit more private, and the triumphal entry, which is this massively public event before the eyes of the entire nation. Verses 9 through 11 are sort of transitional verses that describe uh, the crowd and the reaction of most of the people in the crowd and the religious leaders. So we're going to look at the... Shallow seeking of the crowd, the scheming religious leaders, and then in the remainder of our time, because it's not going to take us very long to go through those two, because we've already really looked at the crowds and the leaders. In the remainder of our time, I'm going to introduce or say, give some introductory comments to the triumphal entry, which will sort of set the stage for starting at verse 12 and looking at it in more in depth next week. So let's look at the shallow seeking of the crowd beginning in verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, the large crowd of the Jews, usually in the Gospel of John, I've said this before, usually when John says the Jews, he is referring in his Gospel to the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people who had the, the vocal and hostile opposition to Jesus. This seems to be one of the rare exceptions in John, where he is describing instead just the crowd of Jews who had come out from the Passover from Jerusalem. Uh There was a large crowd who had come out to Jesus when he heard that they were there, when they learned that he was there. Now, how would these people in Jerusalem have learned that Jesus was in Bethany? Let me remind you of a couple of things. First, Bethany was only two miles outside of Jerusalem. That's a 30-minute walk on your average afternoon. Just go out for a stroll. 30 minutes, you can be in Bethany. You can see Jesus for yourself. So it's very close, relatively speaking, very close to uh, the city of Jerusalem. Second, Bethany was right on the path from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so there were a large number of pilgrims that would be coming along that route And they would have to go literally through downtown Bethany to get from Jericho to Jerusalem. And the Jews are heading up to the feast. How many Jews are coming up to the feast? Leon Morris in his commentary on John says that Josephus records that Passover's had roughly 2,700,000 people coming to a Passover in Jerusalem. Now that's a lot of people, 2,700,000 in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not Los Angeles. Jerusalem was a tiny, it was not much bigger than the temple. It was a small town by today's standards, Jerusalem was. Now let's say, let's say we take 2,700,000 and we assume that Josephus was not very accurate. Let's, let's be conservative and, and say that he was estimating or exaggerating a little bit. Josephus wasn't inspired, so don't panic. He could have been exaggerating. So let's knock off, say, 700,000 people. Let's say it was only 2 million. That's still a lot, right? Let's cut that in half. Let's say it was 1 million. Let's put that in perspective. One million people is two thirds, two thirds of the population of the state of Idaho. Now, imagine that two thirds of the population of the state of Idaho showed up for the festival at Sandpoint. Does that help you envision that? We, we don't even have two thirds of the population of Bonner County show up for the festival at Sandpoint, and the crowds are intolerable, at least as far as I'm concerned. Nobody wants to go downtown. Take, take twice that, take three times that, and put it in the city of Sandpoint. You can get some idea of the smell, the noise, the busyness, the commerce, the chaos, the crowds, the multitudes. That is what Jerusalem looked like for this triumphal entry. So the crowds who were coming up from uh, Jericho through Bethany into Jerusalem by the tens of thousands, day after day after day, making their trek up to celebrate Passover, It is not difficult to imagine that they would stop in Bethany for water or for whatever purposes to spend the night. They would hear that Jesus is there. And by the time they got to Jerusalem, they would be talking about it. And that everybody in Jerusalem would soon find out about it. And keep in mind that Jesus is the talk of this crowd. He is the talk of the crowd because people have for three years known who Jesus is. Jesus of Nazareth was was anything but an obscure figure at this point. For three years, he had been traveling through the regions. And you can imagine that there were in Jerusalem people from the northern regions of Galilee, Maybe some who of the previous year had, had met Jesus on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee and he had multiplied the bread and the fish and fed some of them. Now they are back in Jerusalem for this next feast. They know who Jesus is. They know who he claims to be. Some of these people have witnessed his miracles. Some of them know people who have witnessed his miracles. Some of these people in Jerusalem were the beneficiaries of his miracles. And then in the southern half of the nation, you had people who had heard him teach in the temple. They have seen him do miracles, even in Judea, down in the southern regions. And all of them now are gathering in Jerusalem. And guess what the headline of the day is? He raised Lazarus from the dead. That's what everybody's talking about. Everybody heard of that. And you can imagine that as people were coming through Bethany, they would have heard this story. They would have come into Jerusalem. And the talk of the day is Jesus, it is Lazarus. And then everybody realizes, hey, he's a 30-minute walk outside the city. We can go out and not only see the miracle worker, we can see the evidence of his miracle. We can see Lazarus. Not only do you get to meet Jesus, but we can talk to one who has been dead and come back from the dead, one whom Jesus raised from the dead. So people in large crowds. How large? We're not told. But I can imagine that there would be hundreds or thousands coming out day after day to Bethany. Hundreds or thousands coming out to want to see him. He is the headline of the day. He raised a man who had been four Days dead. And that is the most public and the most spectacular and the most amazing miracle. It just so happens to be the most recent miracle that is on record that they know of. And that's what everybody is talking about. So when they heard this, they came out to see Jesus. And verse 9 says, And they came out not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now do you see a problem with that? What are they coming out for? Are they coming out to see Jesus for Jesus' sake? What are they coming out to Bethany to see? Not only Jesus, but Lazarus. Here's the problem with this crowd, and this shows their shallow seeking, their shallowness. They are coming out because there is in Bethany a spectacle, a spectacular spectacle. Uh, A sensational story with a sensational man and a man who is a sensation who has been raised from the dead. Uh, People, as I mentioned before, it's big business to claim that you've been to the grave and back today. And people will go out and see these folks. And there's a movie coming out, by the way. I can't wait for this. Heaven is for Real, coming out in the spring. You can see the trailer online. Don't waste your time this afternoon. There's better things to watch this afternoon than the trailer for Heaven is for Real. But sometime in the next week, you might want to check it out so you know it's coming. It is big business and it is sensational to say that you have been to heaven or that you have died and that you have come back. Everybody wants to hear your story. Everybody wants to hear you tell the tale. And so people will come out in droves and they will fill churches. They will fill stadiums to see things that are spectacular. Lazarus and Jesus is no different. They are coming out not just for Jesus' sake, but also for Lazarus. And here's the problem. When Lazarus is equally as interesting as Jesus, you have a problem. That's what the crowd saw. They did not see the value in Jesus for Jesus being Jesus. They saw the value in Jesus because of what he did to Lazarus. And they want to come out not just to see Jesus. That's kind of a benefit. They also want to come out and see Lazarus. It's both of them. There is something innate in human nature, and you probably have noticed that, that we are we are drawn to things spectacular or sensational. Are we not? There's something in us that wants to be uh, excited or titillated or to, to behold something, something extraordinary, something supernatural, something that you don't see anywhere else. And modern church growth philosophy says, if you give to people something that they can't get anywhere else, you will fill the building with crowds. And that is true. The easiest thing in the world to do is to gather a crowd. All that I have to do to pack this place or any facility in Sandpoint, to capacity, is to simply offer to people to see something that they will see nowhere else. The easiest thing to do is to, to gather a crowd, because people want to see something sensational, something spectacular, something extraordinary or supernatural. What do you think it is that draws men to the, the well-crafted and well-orchestrated charades of men like Benny Hinn and his ilk? What do you think it is that draws them? Sound biblical exposition, teaching of the word, A glimpse of the glory of God is revealed in the text of Scripture, an appreciation for God's divine glory. What is it that draws men to to teachers like uh, uh, Mike Bickle and Bill Johnson of the New Apostolic Reformation and all of their stuff? It's the opportunity to see an angel feather fall out of the the air vent or angel dust. or Maybe we're going to see a miracle or we're going to see somebody's filling turn to gold or we're going to see something spectacular that we can't see anywhere else. It's not their teaching. Trust me. Go listen to them. It's not their teaching. There's nothing of depth, there's nothing of significance, there's nothing of value. There's no appreciation for the passage of Scripture. But you know why people, why people are drawn to that? They want to see something, they're hoping to see something that they have never seen before and that they can't see anywhere else. Some spectacular manifestation of the glory of God. There is something innate in human nature that desires to see something spectacular. And Jesus, in the minds of this crowd, offered to them the opportunity to see something supernatural and spectacular And they come, not for Jesus, but they come just like the crowd in John 6, for the sign. Do you remember the crowd in John 6? He fed the multitudes, the bread and the fish. And what did they want the next day? Feed us again. And don't just feed us again. Feed us like Moses fed us. And they start making demands upon God. They want to see the signs. But what does Jesus say about a generation that seeks after signs? They are wicked and they are perverse. Jesus never performed a sign for anybody who demanded that he perform a sign to prove who he was. He never did. The Pharisees did that. Show us a sign for the reason that you do these things. Show us a sign to prove to us who you are. And Jesus never did it. In fact, he called them out and he said, You are a wicked and perverse generation because you seek after signs. And any ministry and any people who will pander to that fleshly desire to see something spectacular in order to draw a crowd is simply pandering to the basest, most wicked, most elemental part of human nature and the human flesh. And Jesus never did that. He never did it. So why did this crowd come out? All they wanted to do was see a sensational event or a sensational thing. And on this day, it was Lazarus and it was Jesus. That is the shallow seeking of the crowd. Now, second, I want you to notice the scheming religious leaders in verses 10 and 11. But the chief priests priests planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in him. Now, the chief priest includes the man Caiaphas, who back in chapter 11, verse 9, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, uh, verse 49, sorry, chapter 11, verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, Caiaphas was chief priest that year. He is also one of what they would have called the chief priests, and he is the high priest, so he's the... The chief of the chief priests. The chief priests were the other Sadducees who were sort of belonged to Caiaphas's tribe, as it were, his group, his little sect. And now the chief priests have watched Jesus and they have watched Lazarus and they have now come up with a plan. It wasn't enough for Caiaphas just to put Jesus to death. Now they are deciding that they are going to put Lazarus to death as well. Why? Verse 10. They planned to put Lazarus to death because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So now their plan has moved from just putting Jesus to death to putting Lazarus to death as well. Why Lazarus? Lazarus was a standing rebuke to these men on two accounts. First, Lazarus was a a proof that their theology was unbiblical and wrong. The Sadducees, you remember, didn't believe in anything supernatural, didn't believe in miracles, didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and did not believe that there would be a resurrection of all men at the end of time. They denied bodily resurrection entirely. And then there's Lazarus. What do you do with Lazarus? Lazarus was four days dead. If you don't believe that dead people rise, what do you have to do with Lazarus? Lazarus was a standing rebuke of their theology. Lazarus proved that dead people do come back to life, that there are supernatural things, that miracles are possible, and that there will be a resurrection at the end of time, just as Jesus meant when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will will live even if he dies, and he who lives and believes in me will never die. That promise that Jesus gave was a reproof to their theology, and Lazarus' existence was a reproof of their theology. Second, Lazarus was a rebuke to them because Lazarus showed the incorrigible nature of their hardened hearts. Here were men who knew that Lazarus had died, four days dead, and Lazarus is alive. And Jesus has done this in a demonstrable fashion in front of witnesses. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody knows about it. And they are opposing Jesus and intending to kill him. And two miles outside of the city is a man named Lazarus walking around alive. And his very presence showed just how hardened their hearts were. That in the face of such light and in the face of such evidence, they could remain unbelieving hardened and hostile to the claims of Christ, denying his messiahship and intending to kill him. So Lazarus was a reproof not only to their theology, but he was a reproof to their hardened hearts. And verse 11 says that these people, because on account of him, that is Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. The term going away there means not just that they were leaving Bethany, that they had gone out and they were leaving Bethany. Uh, Leon Morris in his commentary on John says that term going away actually kind of carries the idea of of transferring or leaving your allegiances. And if that's what it means, then here's what is happening. The people who are going out are seeing Lazarus. They see Jesus. And then they're looking at their religious leaders. Men whom they revere and men whom they are afraid of. Men whom who who they must submit to. And they're saying to themselves, our leadership is on the wrong page on this issue. They're on the wrong side of this. Here's a man who claims to be God, claims to be the Messiah, claims to be the King of Israel. He's raising people from the dead. And our leaders want to kill him. And they go and they see Lazarus, they see Jesus. And you know what the people were doing? They were turning away or leaving their allegiances to the Jewish leaders, and they were believing in Jesus. Their allegiances were turning, and the leadership sensed this. They caught this. They knew that in the messianic fervor of Passover, as people are talking about this, they can sense the people's hearts are turning away from them and turning towards Jesus. Now, what does John mean when he says that the people were believing in Jesus? Is he talking about real, genuine, true saving faith? Or is he talking about this fake belief? And we have asked ourselves this all the way through the Gospel of John because we've seen the danger of fake belief and we have seen the reality of real belief. And we have to ask ourselves whenever John says that somebody was a believer or that they believed, whether John is describing the fake belief of chapters 2, 6, 8, and 10 or whether John is describing the true, genuine belief that actually saves men and women. men, uh, uh, Real belief manifested in sacrifice and service like Mary and Martha. What type of belief is he describing? I think that the best we can say, I would say I'm, I'm a little uncertain, the best I think we can say is that by belief here, John means that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the King of Israel. And we would get that from the chance of the crowd beginning in chapter tw- uh, verse 12 of chapter 12 and following. If the chance of the crowd is any indication as to the nature of this belief, then we can say with certainty that the crowd, these people who have gone out, are believing that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus is the Son of David, the King of Israel. They're willing to affirm that. But listen, you can affirm both of those things and still remain unsaved, can't you? You can believe that Jesus is the Messiah, intellectually, and you can believe that Jesus is the Son of David and that He is the King of Israel and that He is a rabbi. You can believe a lot of orthodox things about Jesus of Nazareth without ever truly being saved. You can even believe that he is the son of God or that he is God. Demons believe that much and they tremble. So whether the crowd, these people are actually believing they are being saved or whether they are simply affirming, we believe he's the Messiah, the king. I would say, I think that they're simply affirming that they believe he is the Messiah, the king. And that is what brings us to the now this triumphal entry where the crowd begins to chant this. So with the remainder of our time, having looked at now the service of Martha, the sacrifice of Mary, the scheming of Judas, the shallow seeking of the crowd and the scheming of the leaders that was fun now having looked at all of that we're going to spend the remainder of our time kind of giving you four introductory remarks to this triumphal entry uh, and this will sort of set the stage for next week beginning in verse 12 we have the triumphal entry of jesus and there are four things that are just worth noting in general about this and we read through it we're not going to read through it again though i'm going to draw your attention to a couple of details The first thing is that this is one of the rare events in the Gospel of John that is also mentioned in all three of the Synoptic or the other Gospels. This is one of the only incidences in the life of Jesus. It's one of few. There are a few incidences in the life of Jesus that is mentioned by all four Gospel writers. Now, the anointing is mentioned in three of the four, and the feeding of the 5,000, I think, was mentioned in all four of them as well. So there are a couple of unique events that are mentioned by all the Gospel writers. This is one of them. Now, there are differences, as you're going to notice, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we talked about this in Sunday School today, there are differences between the, the accounts that each writer gives of the, in the four Gospels of this one event. But all of these accounts, all of the details of these accounts can sort of be harmonized very easily, and we'll do that as we're working our way through it. But I want you to know that this is an event that is loaded with theological s- significance. It is loaded with symbolism. It is loaded with Old Testament references and, and concepts, and all of it is sort of culminating now in this very public thing. That is why all four of the Gospel writers mention this, because it is such a rich event. It is so rich in its symbolism and meaning that uh, it's going to take us a number of weeks to kind of work our way through this, because there is so much here. The second thing to notice is that these we have here in John, back to back, two very different pictures of Jesus. And maybe you notice this. In verses 1 to 11, we have the anointing of Jesus for burial. What does that event mean? picture or portray it pictures or portrays his death his sacrifice uh, his burial the anointing of his body for burial even though this event with the with the disciples and everybody else that was there at this meal when mary opened up that vial of very costly perfume and poured it out over jesus that whole house smelled like a funeral procession and there was a palpable sense of death and sacrifice that hung over that event as jesus interpreted what she had done And explain, this is for her burial. You do not have me with you always. And he said this to the disciples. There is that sense of, that sense of death that sort of hangs as a cloud over that whole event. Verse 12, on the very next day, what happens? He is riding triumphant into Jerusalem at like a conquering king to the hail of people and, and, and the verbal worship of people in the crowd. Those are two very different pictures of Jesus, the sacrificing servant, the servant sacrifice in the first 11 verses and the conquering king in the next in the next episode. These two things are are put back to back and they don't contradict one another. They actually complement one another. These are two very accurate pictures of who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he will yet do. So there are two very different pictures of Jesus, but there are two elements of Jesus' life and ministry kind of set side by side for us to observe there. The third thing I want you to notice is that there are two different scripture passages in John's account that are quoted. The first is Psalm 118, which is one of the most quoted Psalms in all of the New Testament. Psalm 118 is a messianic Psalm, and that, those are the words of that Psalm find their lips onto the, uh, find their way onto the lips of the crowd when they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, uh, so we're going to take a look at Psalm 118 when we get to that quotation. And the second passage that is quoted is Zechariah 9, verse 9, and that has to do with the king coming gently on a colt and the, the foal of a donkey. And we're going to look at that prophecy as well. So there are at least two different Old Testament passages that John says have, bear, have bearing upon this event. And that is an indication to us of the rich theological significance of the triumphal entry. It is the fulfillment in many ways of the Old Testament expectation of who Jesus Christ is, and what the Messiah was coming to do. And Jesus did these things so that the prophecies would be fulfilled. Jesus knew full well that what he was doing was a fulfillment of prophecy, and he directed the events for that purpose. The fourth thing that we're going to notice is that this is entirely different of what Jesus has done up until now. There is something about the triumphal entry that is entirely different than Jesus' conduct in the Gospels all the way up until this point. And here's what I mean. Normally in the Gospels, we see Jesus withdrawing from the crowds, not engaging the crowds. In John chapter 6, when they wanted to make him king, what was his response? He went away up on a mountaintop by himself alone. Uh, There's more than one occasion in the Gospels when Jesus, after healing somebody, told them, don't say anything about what has happened to you. Tell nobody about this healing. There's more than one occasion when Jesus did that. We see Jesus not going into the, pri- into, into the public limelight and the public spotlight and drawing attention to himself. Instead, we see him on more than one occasion on multiple occasions withdrawing from the crowd, seeking to be alone. Even at the end of chapter 10, the end of chapter 11, Jesus leaves the city. He goes out into the wilderness. He is alone with his disciples. There is more than one time when he did that. Jesus was not the type of person who was boisterous and always sought attention and sought public acclaim, even though what he did was public. And, and, and the, the nature of his miracles were themselves public and required almost publicity and drew crowds and drew multitudes to him. But we don't see him seeking that. This event is entirely different. This event is in front of tens of thousands of people. He chose the busiest day of the year, the busiest time of the year, the busiest city in the entire nation. And he did this in broad daylight in front of as many people as we could conceivably imagine This is the most public event that ever took place in the life of Jesus. This is him before more eyes than he has ever been before till now. It is entirely different. He is not drawing away from the crowds. He is actually going right into the spotlight and engaging the crowds. And why is that? And I would give you a few reasons why. First of all, I believe that what Jesus is doing by seeking this public attention, he is purposefully antagonizing the religious leaders of the nation. He knew that this was going to anger them, and he did it on purpose. And here's why. We find out in Matthew and Mark that they did not want to do, the religious leaders did not want to do anything at this feast because they feared a riot. Well, Jesus knows that he is coming to Jerusalem to die on Passover, on Friday. Why would he do this? One of the reasons, he is antagonizing the hostile religious leaders in taking action against him. Because listen, he is going to die on his timetable. He's going to die on Friday. He knows that. He is orchestrating these events to fulfill that prophecy. It was not proper that the Passover lamb, the sacrifice for our sins, should die on any day other than Passover on that Friday. And he is going to do that. And the religious leaders have their own timetable. Jesus is speeding things up from a human perspective. He is intentionally antagonizing them, knowing that this would make them hostile. Knowing that as the religious leaders listen to the crowd sing his praises, that they would try and rebuke the crowd, and they did. And that they would try and shut people up, and they did. And Jesus defended the crowd and told them it's appropriate for them to do this. The rocks must cry out if they don't. Jesus knew that what he was doing would antagonize the religious leaders into taking action and taking action now. And that was exactly what he intended to do. The second reason I think this is public is because it is quite appropriate that this event, beginning now and, of course, this entire week of the Lord Jesus, that this event should be as public as possible. Not only is Jesus presenting himself as a sacrifice in doing this, but he is presenting himself as a king, and he is doing so in front of the entire nation. Jews from all over the world, Egypt, Ethiopia, uh, everywhere, Cappadocia, Turkey, Europe, Jews had all come back to the Passover for this event, and Jesus is standing in the midst of all of those people between as many, uh, before as many Jews as you and I could possibly imagine, and he is presenting his claims before the entire nation. And not only would his presentation of his claims to them be as public as possible, but the religious leader's rejection of Jesus would be as public as possible, and the nation's rejection of Jesus would be as public as possible, and the crucifixion of Jesus would be as public as possible. Why is that appropriate? Paul, when he was giving the gospel to Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verse 26, says, The king knows these things are true, for these things have not been done in a corner. It wasn't appropriate that the events which surrounded the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world It was not appropriate that that event should be done in a corner and secretly. It was displayed before all men, and rightly so, because now salvation has come and been made available to mankind, and the entire world can be saved. The gospel is an invitation to the entire world to believe. All men, without distinction, Jews, Gentiles, everybody can come, should come, are commanded to come, commanded to repent. The sacrifice has been made for the sheep of Christ, and now all men are commanded to come and partake of that. And that command goes out to all men. It was appropriate that this event should be as public a declaration of God's intention to save and God's readiness and willingness to save as possible. And that's exactly what it is. And the third reason is I think that this public showing that Jesus does here in John chapter 12, this public event, is his way of showing that he is not running from the religious leaders. He's not afraid of them. At the end of chapter 11, he left and went out in the wilderness. At the end of chapter 10, he left and went outside the city. Why did he do that? Because he was afraid to die? He didn't do that because he was afraid to die. He did that because he knew he was going to die, but he was going to die on his timetable. And it had to be his timetable. He didn't do that to avoid death. He did that to avoid death at that time. Now he is coming back into Jerusalem, and here is the intention. Just as his departure from Jerusalem and his departure from the crowds showed to them, you don't control the day of my death, so his arrival in Jerusalem demonstrates to them, you don't control the day of my death. I am coming here willingly. I am not afraid of you, I am not avoiding death, I am not avoiding you, I am here to die. That was his intention. As public as possible before the eyes of the people to show that he is not a hapless victim in these events. He is a willing volunteer. That is our Savior. That is what he is doing in the triumphal entry. And that kind of introduces that, and here really is the lesson that we learn from the triumphal entry. Jesus Christ, when he came into Jerusalem, was not, as I said, a hapless victim. He is not someone who is being carried along by the events in these chapters. And as this very public thing begins to unfold, we must keep in mind through the rest of the Gospel of John that there is nothing that happens, not a single thing that happens from here on out. Actually, anything that's happened to John. There is not a single thing that happens from here on out that is outside of his sovereign control. He is not being coerced or forced to do anything that happens. He is willingly, sovereignly controlling everything that happens in these chapters. Everything surrounding his death, everything surrounding his resurrection, his burial, all of it. He is going to die at their hands, but he is going to die on his terms and at his time. Because this is the good shepherd who came to give his life for his sheep, to give life to his sheep, and to die for his bride, the church. That's what the shepherd is doing. And so as we watch this unfold, we ought not to think at any time, that Jesus is being coerced, or that he is a victim of circumstances. He is not. He's controlling all of this. It's all under His sovereign control. That's what the triumphal entry demonstrates. It's public, and it's his doing, because he came to die for his sheep. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful to you for a Savior who has died in our place. We thank you for a shepherd who came to save and secure all those who will believe in him. We thank you for the gospel, which has is the power of God unto salvation, and secures everlastingly all those who place their faith in Christ. It is our joy to see our shepherd, who is sovereign in all of these things, control all of the events, all of the details and the timing of his own death and sacrifice for us. We thank you, Father, that our Christ is not only a suffering servant, but that he is also our coming king, that he rules and that he reigns. And it is our joy and our pleasure to gladly bow the knee before him, to call him our king, who is our brother.